Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Greetings, pod pickers. It's Tony Blackman here welcoming you to the Reasons to be Cheerful 2018 Top 10 Ideas of the Year. What's going up? What's going down? And what's a non-mover? Handing over to your esteemed hosts, it's Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Take it away. Thanks, great mates. I, I think the episode's worth it just for that. Isn't really. that fantastic? Yeah, I know. It's really, really good. Well done to Emma. For, yeah. and thank you very much to Tony Blackburn for having done that. Yeah, so uh, so that's what this episode is. It is our Reasons to be Cheerful Top 10 of the Year. Can you explain that? Not off. Yeah. <laughs> that that would, was Alan Freeman. It was. Rest in yeah. peace. Yeah, this is about, I, th- I suppose you'd say it's about our favourites isn't it? Mm. Uh, and the episodes we really, we, we enjoyed every episode. We love all of our episodes equally, but these are the ones that we particularly thought were relevant and where maybe something has happened in the course of the year. Let, let's was, not be humble here. We're, we're looking for the episodes where there has been direct change in the world as a result oh, of us featuring true. it yeah, yeah, on yeah. Reasons to be Cheerful. Yeah, more or less. We're going to take the credit. We're going to take, well, I see. Okay, well, that's good. A bit of sort of not humble brag, but sort of brag brag. And at number 10, it's a new entry for episode 29, Taking It to the Streets. Uh, this was an episode about community regeneration lessons from Granby, Preston. It was a live show we did in Liverpool. Uh, guests were Theresa McDermott, Councillor Matthew Brown and Neil McEnroy about the way people can regenerate and transform their communities and build local businesses and wealth. And we're going to hear from Councillor Matthew Brown. Tell the audience and, and those listening at home a little bit about... The Preston experience, just so people can get their heads around that to begin with. It's a very fascinating uh, situation. It does kind of like fit in with the global situation because every person in this audience, their family, uh, they've paid four and a half thousand pounds to bail out the economy ten years ago, and since then, um, things aren't getting better for most of us. So Preston was 
pretty much fitted into that because we waited a long time for money to come in from big global developers, one of which was Lendlease, which has caused a lot of controversy recently. And then after 13 years of waiting for this money to come in, we realised that it wasn't going to happen because they pulled out after the main anchor store withdrew from the scheme. So we thought, well, we need to be more resilient about what we're trying to achieve, you know, and do it ourselves in some way. And, and just explain to people here, because lots of people are talking about Preston. You had John McDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, at a conference recently. You've been featured in the national newspapers. Just tell us, just sort of in simple terms... What is it that you're doing around, in particular, this quite, what sounds like a, quite a techie concept of procurement, I think I'm right in saying, and the way the council and other public sector bodies spend their money? What are you doing that's different from what everyone else is doing? We're trying to keep money in the city. It's as simple as that, you know. We're seeing that we've got huge pockets of deprivation still, still huge challenges. We've got austerity, which is continuing. And we're making sure that the institutions like our universities, councils, hospitals, where they're buying in goods and services it's going to have a benefit and it's going to create jobs and keep money in the community. Who does it mean they're spending their money with and who does it mean they're not spending their money with? Yeah, I mean, what we're doing is we're supporting local businesses, so it's small family-owned businesses, you know, lots of them. They keep wealth in the community, independent traders, but we're also looking at forming worker-owned businesses. So we're going to, be, we're going to have two worker co-ops that are going to be formed in the next few months. And one of them's going to be around food, the other's going to be around IT, and there they're going to create jobs and actually be linked to what the public sector is buying. So it's quite exciting because it means that there's more democracy in the local economy. So instead of outside investors deciding, you know, what happens, we're deciding ourselves as a community. You know, and you look around a lot of cities in America, Cleveland, Barcelona, they're doing it that way. So is it, is it quite an institutionalised way of thinking over here that councils don't feel obliged to spend that money locally and put it back into the local economy? I think there's just a culture that we think that what big business wants, we should follow, you know. And I think that has been a culture that's been around for 35 years. And, you know, with the collapse of Carillion, and I think Capita's in trouble as well, you know, I think people are thinking again. Carillion was a big outsourcing company. Yeah, of course, yeah. 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 So, you know, so that's why what we're doing is so simple, but it's quite revolutionary with, with what we've had for the last and, 35 years. And tell us about the, what are the results? I mean, how do you measure the results of this? In, in pounds and pence? The results are how people's lives are getting better. You know, I just think it's good to look at things in simple terms. And issues around deprivation are improving in that. We're out of the top, bottom, fifth of uh, the most deprived areas as a council authority. People receiving the real living wage of 8.75 an hour. We're now the best out of Lancashire because of these policies. You know, as I said, so you always pay the living wage in your procurement? You only pay firms who are paying the living yeah, wage Yeah, we, we encourage it as far as legally possible, and we pay it to our staff as well. But the rest of the public sector pretty much in Preston, you know, besides from the civil service, they pay it as well, like Lancashire Constabulary, Preston College, Community Gateway Association, the Housing Association. They all pay the real living wage, you know, and it's lifting people up. What we do want is we want our own bank, because everyone in our communities across the country, they're putting the money in the major banks, a lot of that wealth is trickling away into distant shareholders. They then don't pay the taxes, you know. So we've got to move to a, a system like they have in Germany, where every single community has a not-for-profit community bank. And we're working on that at the moment. And if we do that, that's a way to regenerate the area, because you're putting more democracy into the local economy. And if we had a not-for-profit bank that was owned by the community, I think people get excited about it. We'd have lots of civic pride. 
And it's a way of fighting back because people have had enough of austerity. They've had enough of neoliberal economics. They just had enough of it. And the outcomes are dreadful because it's things like life expectancy, early death, mental illness. This all comes from uh, inequality, you know. And this is one way at a local level of fighting back by making the economy more democratic and capturing wealth for the community. So what happened? Who, who took notice of us on this one? Well, look, on the strength of that episode, Matthew Brown became the leader of Preston Council. Wow. I mean, look, we <laughs> turned him from the head of long-term community regeneration, blah, blah, into the uh, leader of Preston Council. We are kingmakers. We are kingmakers. <laughs> no, I mean, look, he, I'm sure he got there on merit. Nothing to do with our episode. Um, but uh, I think what's interesting about it is that we did the Preston episode earlier in the year. Since then, we've seen... Uh, John McDonald, Shadow Chancellor, established a community wealth unit to look at how we can export Preston model to other areas of the UK. You've seen lots of people writing about Preston and what it can do. Uh, Matthew is focused on uh, a Lancashire wide investment bank. So look, I think what we did was we had an interesting episode, but I think we spread the gospel about Preston. Back to the countdown at number nine. It's episode 32, Ending the Blame Game, the case for no-fault divorce. Now, this was uh, an episode that was an eye-opener to me because Certainly I didn't realise just how awful the divorce laws are in this country. Uh, current rules mean that blame has to be thrown around to make divorce happen, even if it's the last thing that the couple or their children need. Aisha Vardag, Nigel Shepard and Chris Sherwood joined us to discuss the case for no-fault divorce, and we're going to hear from Aisha and Chris. Unhappy couples have to petition the court showing that they've committed some form of fault in order to get a divorce. The problem with that is that, uh, well, first of all, it's against the fundamental idea of the freedom to enter into or to exit relationships. So you have the case of Mrs. Owens, who's an elderly lady who's desperate to leave her marriage, but hasn't thrown sufficient mud at her husband for the court to determine that she's entitled to get out. So she's trapped there and will be trapped there for five years of separation unless she uh, wins her appeal that's um, coming through the Supreme Court shortly. That, to me, is a, 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 an unacceptable restriction on individual freedoms and autonomy. The second, uh, the second problem is that uh, having this situation leads to a lot of unnecessary acrimony in, in couples who are having difficulties. Um, you'll have a couple who might come and they're, they're really sad and regretful about the end of their marriage, but they, uh, they don't bear any real, real ill will towards their partner. But then we force them as lawyers, because we have to, to sit down and compose a list of insulting and offensive things about their spouse, whom they've loved, who they may have had children with, and that's what they have to put through the court. The other side gets this, and of course they feel immense hostility. This leads to all kinds of bad will to do with the divorce, and it also massively reduces the prospects of any sort of reconciliation, which can take place even after a divorce petition. You know, if we look at what's happening in the England and Wales legal system, the fact that we have a fault-based divorce system, you know, we see the challenges that has in the counselling room on couples who are, you know, having to invent these reasons about by why they want to go for a divorce or separation. If a couple have children and they're going through divorce, then actually their their intimate couple relationship is coming to an end, but their relationship as co-parents is going to continue with those children and putting them on a good footing for that is is incredibly important. And I think, you know, what, what I find 
found frustrating about the argument about why we need a fault-based divorce system is that we can't do anything to make divorce easier. But actually, I find that really difficult to hear because actually no one approaches divorce um, as an easy thing to do or lightly. You know, we see the pain and the, the heartache that people bring into the counselling room when they're experiencing relationship difficulties. It's not something that people approach lightly. Um, so I think, you know, that the kind of fault-based divorce system reinforces conflict at a time which is actually quite a difficult time for people anyway. And particularly for my concern is about the impact that has on children as they see their parents having to invent reasons. And, you know, I, you know I've been through a civil partnership dissolution myself. And, you know, we were a you know, two gay men who were, you know, coming to the end of a relationship. We knew we wanted to break up and we had to sit in a pub in South London and invent a bunch of reasons why my ex-civil partner was was separating from me and wanted to have a civil partnership dissolution. I mean, you know, the, the law is an ass in that example. And, and what impact does it have on couples that you see it relate that, that they, they can't just divorce if they both want to? They've got to find unreasonable behavior or adultery what 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 sort of material impact does it have well i mean we we do see that you know in certainly in england and wales you know more than half of divorce petitions are fault based which you know compared to jurisdictions like scotland that's incredibly high so either we're having lots and lots of unreasonable behavior and adultery in england and wales compared to uh, you know jurisdiction like scotland or what we do see through surveys and resolution survey finds that a quarter of couples are actually you know trying to embellish or should i say make up their reasons for going for a divorce or for their divorce and we have if you like a a, a, a natural point of reference now for this which is scotland where they changed the law in 2006 where they do have no fault divorce i mean tell us a little bit about scotland because it hasn't led to an increase in divorce in scotland has it no i, I think the, the, again this argument that it's going to lead to, to more divorce by making divorce a bit easier i'm not sure that is right and certainly we see that from our own services that as i said you know people approach this it's a very difficult situation to go through it's not just scotland other jurisdictions you know north america australia parts of europe do as well and ju- just to be clear about this the system you'd like is where you can divorce on the if both parties consent without fault with some kind of cooling off period or straight away or how does how would it work i think a cooling off period you know can be helpful in that sort of situation um richard bacon the conservative mp for norfolk south when he put his private members bill through on this topic his 10-minute rule bill in 2015 he talked about a 12-month cooling off period i mean we can debate what the cooling off period is i think that you know that can be helpful because we also have to remember that one of the things that does come through is that some people do regret their divorce after they separated but again i think what richard bacon also talked about in his 10-minute rule bill is we need to ensure that you know services are available to support separating couples whether that's relationship counseling from organizations like relate my own organization and alternatives to going to family court through things like family mediation and online dispute resolution well things have really been kicking off since then absolutely people listened to that episode and thought i'm gonna do something about this well actually what happened was that mrs owens who is referred to i think in that uh in that episode uh went to the supreme court uh, she was told she wasn't going to be allowed to divorce her husband. Um, and th- this did prompt a sort of widespread outcry. Uh, and the government t- took has taken up the cudgels and they have now published a consultation paper on reforming the legal requirements uh, for divorce. David Gork, the Lord Chancellor and Secretary of State for Justice, referred specifically to the Owens case. 
uh, that had generated broader questions about what the law requires of people going through divorce and what it achieves in practice. And the consultation proposes adjusting what the law requires to bring a legal end to a marriage that has broken down irretrievably. And this adjustment includes removing the ability to allege fault. So I think changes in the air, quite right too, really. On to number eight. In our top 10 reasons. <laughs> Careful, no more of that. Otherwise, we'll have to pay music licensing rights. I think it's sufficiently uh, uh, I think unclear. <laughs> I'm sufficiently out of tune. Not uh, off. Uh, number eight is episode 16. Hashtag epic rail fail, ending the great train robbery. Um, and this is about the billions that have been spent in government subsidies and the eye-watering ticket prices uh, for travellers. And what's to be done about this? We spoke to Andrew Adonis, who used to be Transport Secretary, Anton Volk, who used to run or help run the Dutch Public Railway, and our friend Nicole Badstuber here, who joins us to help reason it out. And now you've written uh, advocating uh, as far back as 2015 that you think there is a way to take britain's railways back into the public sector without cost uh, as franchises expire perhaps you can just explain your position and why you're advocating for that basically the government could at a very low cost take back the franchises as they expire at the moment you have these franchises which basically are sort of regional monopolies as the country's been cut up the railway's been cut up into little chunks and they've been put out to tender um, these contracts will expire there's sort of a schedule of when they will expire and as they expire, the government could choose not to put them out for tender again. You would save money because that entire process of putting it out to tender and checking the bids and also reimbursing each of the companies for making that bid would fall away. Um, you have the example of how having the government run the railway um, has worked. Um, and you could also do something similar with these Roscoe's, so these train leasing companies. Um, actually, most of the new trains have been purchased directly by the government. So this has already been done with Thameslink and Crossrail. Um, and in the next few years, 75% of all the new trains will have been bought directly by the government. So there is precedent there and there is a clear um, path where how this could be achieved without them having to buy out all of the companies as well as waiting for these franchises to expire, they could, um, as the companies fail to, I guess, um, meet their commitments, um, decide to claw it back. So something like Southern or the East Coast, the government could have chosen to take it back. And what do you think the advantages would be of having that system where you have a public operator of all of these major intercity networks, as opposed to a competitive model whereby the public sector and the private sector can, can can bid. I guess my main argument for why it should be in the public sector, um, I guess is most is best framed by this question of why should we be providing transport? Why should we be providing rail transport? And it's not to be making profit. It's actually to achieve wider social policy aims. Um, so whether that's um, promoting social mobility or better access to education, to support um, health services by actually enabling people to access them. And so transport is only a means to an end. It's never, and it never should have been a policy objective in itself. And so the current system is set up to just provide more and more transport without consideration of whether that transport is needed or addresses the objective of wider social policy. And so the only person that, or the only institution that I can identify that is best placed to make 
that have that holistic view um, and has that breadth of responsibility and therefore can assess the value of making the decision to subsidize transport in certain areas or certain transport, for instance, nighttime transport, is the government because they have other means and mechanisms by which they can um, you. Uh, I guess, capture that value that has been created elsewhere in society or the economy. And just to get a bit more technical for a second, there's this concept, isn't there, the economists have of natural monopolies. Um, just explain to people what a natural monopoly is and, and sort of whether, whether it, in your view, applies in this, in this case. But some people say, well, there's lots of good benefits of competition. I think one of the issues I've got is once the franchise is awarded, and we've already heard about some of the problems of that awarding, there isn't really much competition. You know, you're on a virgin train, uh, you've got no choice. It's their sandwiches or no sandwiches, or their trains or no trains. Yeah. So I think, I mean, the railway is an example of competition for the market rather than competition in the market. There's huge infrastructure costs, and it doesn't would never make any sense to replicate multiple lines going to the same place so that you can have multiple railway companies running the same services and then competing. So the only way that you can have competition within this sector is competition for the market. The sort of way that the franchisees try and get around that is by low bidding um, and then backing out when the premiums are too high. One thing that people who are critics of the idea of public ownership will raise, and obviously this dates to a time which Jeff and I can remember better than you, uh, is the sort of days of British Rail, Jeff in particular. Uh, um, no, Andrew remembers the uh, days of Dr. Uh, Beeching, yeah, exactly. closing uh, down the local line. I, I was a mate of his. Uh, you know, people um, don't remember that sort of nationalised British Rail as being these halcyon golden, days. It's not a golden age. Um, how do you avoid a sort of unresponsive publicly owned system? What, what's the examples from elsewhere, from around the world? Can you avoid that? Is, is it about the way you would structure public ownership? Is it about you know, having a certain service for the intercity and then a different one for other local services? How would you go about that? I mean, I guess something I would generally be advocating for is to split the franchises between sort of metro, regional, commuter-based services and longer distance services. I think generally that makes a lot of sense. You can see success stories of that with the London Overground and the actual drive to create more of a London Overground by taking over more of the commuter belt in London. Um, what this also does would allow maybe regional governments to be in charge of um, franchising out the services. Um, they could then tie that in better with the bus networks or even if there is a metro network in that city. Um, and I think that entire governance structure would lend itself much better to providing transport that local people would need. So to be clear about this, the intercity would be one in integrated service for the long distance. Maybe intercity is the wrong way of describing it. Yeah. Longer distance services will be one integrated public service and then regional governments, mayors and so on would make decisions a bit like Transport for London about those services. Yeah, I think that would be a model that would work well and you can see sort of examples of how it has worked well. After our episode, are we now living in a golden age of nationalised rail? Mm, not exactly. How has this moved on? Well, um, Chris Grayling heard our episode and he decided to nationalise East Coast. <laughs> Uh, he said, ah, you're right, guys. Hands up. Uh, you know, it's a fair cop, Gov. Um, let's, let's start the process of nationalization. Well, not quite, actually. Um, but basically the East Coast thing, which was already a pretty much a sort of, you know, complete sort of disaster, became more of a disaster. Um, the, it was run by, uh, Virgin and Stagecoach. Uh, 
uh, and they ended up bailing out uh, and we ended up we've now got the state run lner um from june 2018 and you know what it's really interesting you and i this is a slight uh digression went to the george ezra concert just before christmas and at the George Ezra concert, I was obviously on the lookout for people who wanted selfies with me. I was sort of had a sandwich board saying, I'm Ed, I used to be famous. Do you fancy a selfie? Anyway, one person saw the sandwich board, came up to me, and she is a really nice woman. And I talked to her and I think her partner, and she works in the innovation team at LNER. And that was really good for me and terrible for her because it meant I could wang on to her at great length about my sort of, you know, could they improve the food? Uh, well, you know, they should make the Wi-Fi free. What about those 20 minutes between uh, King's Cross and Doncaster at the beginning of the journey, which is like a complete dead zone on the mobile phone signal? Anyway, she really nodded. What and, a lovely thing and, for her on a night out, she was on a like, Christmas night out. You know, she kind of edged away. You know, she kind of gradually edged away from me. And then fortunately for her, you know, George Ezra came out. Uh, but anyway, um, one of the points I made to her is it's re- you know it does have to feel different, or you know LNER from before. If I think people are going to have faith in public ownership, one of the things that um, is really important they can't just feel like the same thing as before. Um, so uh, she said they'd introduce something which allows you to have an app or something. She was tells- just saying anything no, no, to that, shut you up. that tells you whether the seats are full or not, so you avoid the Jeremy Corbyn standing problem. Aha! Uh-huh. So there you go. It's our top ten countdown of the ideas of the year. Who's going up? Who's going down? Who are the movers? The shakers? The slippers? The sliders? God, you've done this before. No, I haven't. Have you ever done the show? No, all these years as a DJ. This is your. You never thought no. your moment would come. Yeah, now. and here it is. Yeah, move over, Bruno Brooks. Yeah. So at number seven. It's episode 55, Living for the, brackets, three-day weekend. I love this episode. I love the idea of a four-day week. And nearly as much as you love the idea of a one-day week. Yeah, even better. Yeah, but, you yeah. know, you've got you've to yeah. move there in increments. Salami slicing, yeah. 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 Uh, a company in New Zealand have been trialling four-day working week, and, and they've found that their staff are achieving as much in four as they were in five. Uh, we talked to a few different people, including Kate Bell from the TUC, who joined us to talk about how realistic it would be uh, and uh, how that would allow a company to continue paying a full wage. And we hear here from Andrew Barnes, who is the founder of Perpetual Guardian, the company in New Zealand undertaking that trial. I read a, uh article from The Economist which said that Brits were actually only productive for two and a half hours a day and then went on suggesting that Canadians were a, a, an even worse one and a half hours a day. So I then started to think, well, why is that, and would that apply to my business? And I, I figured it was because that people, when they were in the office, had lots of disturbances of varying fine uh, kinds. It could be social, it could be social media, it could be business. And that got me thinking, if I gave my staff a day off, would it change their working habits when they're in the office? What we're trying to say is that the debate you need to have with your employees is about productivity. So we gave them a month to plan, and then we launched uh, what was then a two-month trial. At the same time, we ran research from uh, Auckland University Business School and Auckland University T- of Technology alongside it so that we could identify what the impacts were uh, on the staff 
and on the way the company was was operating. And so that was quite a defined piece of research. And then we stopped and then we evaluated the research and then revisited what we'd done uh, before we were in a position to then say, right, oh, let's let's make this permanent. And tell us about the results and then and then your decision to make it permanent. Interestingly, productivity broadly remained the same. Now, that means effectively our staff were being 20% more productive in the days they did work. So our model is uh, based on a conventional... 32 hours, basically. Yeah, yeah, a conventional day. We don't increase the hours when you're working in the four. So our productivity yeah. was broadly the same, went up marginally. What happened, though, was that engagement scores went up by an average of 30 to 40% across the company. Work-life balance shot up. Stress levels dropped by about 15%. But the one that really jumped out of the page was that people's perception of their ability to handle their workload improved. Which is paradoxical, maybe. Absolutely paradoxical. I can work four days and it's easier to do my work. What we then got is a, is a whole raft of, of, shall we say, rather more softer results on the qualitative side. And we realized that this was changing the lives of our staff in a material way. It was enabling our male employees to be dads during the week, to go and pick their kids yeah. up, to give reconnection. Yeah. Um, it, we had a newly married couple, you know, he worked as a chef at weekends. My employee was actually able to spend a day with her husband, which otherwise wouldn't have occurred. All of this yeah. stuff we didn't anticipate. And then that flowed through into debates around gender pay, uh, how we think about flexible working. So the whole experiment started to open up more lines of thought than we ever imagined when we initiated the trial at, at the beginning of the year. So after that episode, I mean... I, I, the four-day week's come in, have you in noticed? It's in 2019. Yeah, exactly. We're all working a four-day week from now Exa- onwards. Exactly. What's happened? Well, um, we're scraping the barrel a bit here. I'm not sure <laughs> the four-day... More people are talking about the four-day week after our episode... Mm. Um, I certainly found it very eye-opening. I don't know about you, because I always thought the the problem was, you know, how do you do this in a way that doesn't cut people's pay? But the Andrew Barnes point is we can uh, generate greater productivity uh, and therefore, you know, it doesn't mean to cut in salary. There's all kinds of benefits from it. I, I found it really compelling, I must say. It's one of the episodes I've sort of taken with me and sort of internalized and it's also i mean can you imagine 15 years ago talking about the four-day week and looking into it and maybe eventually putting it in a manifesto people would have thought you were crazy yeah and i think the point that kate bell made on the episode which we didn't hear that this bit but you know is that people used to work a sort of 60 hour week and then you know expectations have changed um so you know i think there's obviously more to do but uh i think it's a really important idea Let's get back to the important business of counting down the reasons to be cheerful ideas of the year and at number six. Bubbling under. (laughs) It's episode 34. What should we do about meat? Uh, reasons to be vegan and this this is something people are talking about a lot at the moment how uh, 
going vegetarian or vegan can make a really big difference to your environmental footprint. And this was an episode about the overconsumption of meat, which is bad for climate change, animal welfare and our health. Our guests were Sam Calvert, who told us what needs to change, plus pioneering farmer Ilta Dunsford on whether lab-grown meat is the answer. But in this clip, we hear from Claire Oxborough from Friends of the Earth. Well, livestock production has an absolutely massive environmental impact. Um, So whether that's climate change, uh, gases that are being produced from their production, 14.5% globally, around 10% of uh, UK and EU emissions just from meat and dairy. That's about the same as transport emissions globally. Um, There's huge impacts on land use. So we all think about cows grazing, but fewer people think about the actual feed that's grown to produce, um, to to feed the animals in industrial systems, in particular pigs and poultry, massive hectares of um, soy grown in Argentina and Brazil, devastating rainforests and uh, Cerrado and other precious habitats around the world. Um, And then you've got massive amount of water use as well um, and other resources. Um, Huge impacts also on our health. So globally, we're eating too much meat, um, particularly in, in countries like the UK, certainly in countries like the US, um, we're eating about twice as much as we should be, and that's good for our health. Um, and we're, we're also there are issues with animal welfare. So particularly, Friends of the Earth is concerned with livestock production in intensive systems. Um, that really has fueled the production of cheap meat meaning people are eating too much that's bad for us and bad for the planet and bad for animal welfare. Can you tell us about how that's changed? Because that wouldn't have been true of our grandparents' generation. Absolutely. So, you know, 50, 60 years ago, meat was a treat. Meat was valued. It was quite expensive. Um, We would have had a Sunday roast. Um, The leftovers would have lasted for the rest of the week. Um, And people were quite inventive about, you know, eating the whole animal as well and and using everything everything there. Um, And since the advent of real industrial production of you know factory farming essentially cramming thousands of animals in tiny spaces um taking them off the land putting them in sheds so we don't see them as as the public we don't know what's what's kind of going on there um and and that kind of mass production using vast amounts of imported animal feed from south america has has kind of meant lots and lots of cheap meat on the market and it's mainly yeah chicken and poultry chicken and pigs you know we think about when we're talking about environmental impacts it's often the ruminants that get most of the blame, the cattle and the sheep, because they do produce most of the um, direct methane and, and other greenhouse gas emissions. But the hidden um, impacts are really there in terms of the intensive industrial pig and poultry production systems, which really are hideous on every level. The difference in the debate now, you know, from where we were five and ten years ago, where you couldn't even talk about eating less meat ten years ago without, you know, Boris Johnson getting yeah. in, a, in a real tizzy about telling him to not eat his bacon sandwich or whatever it was. Um, I don't think it was him and the bacon sandwich. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> it was a barbecue sausage. Yeah. Just think, if you'd been vegetarian, you'd have been prime minister by now. Absolutely. Thanks very much. <laughs> but now, you know, now I think there is a general acceptance that we need to eat less, and then now we're thinking about was. Well, how do we do that? How do we actually encourage people to do that? And I think too often a lot of the pressure is put on us as individuals, as individual consumers to make those choices and make the right choices. And, and of course, there's loads we can do in our diets. But I think what something we haven't mentioned yet is the role of government and the role of food businesses 
to drive that in the right direction, actually support those choices much better than they're currently doing. Um, food businesses are definitely seeing the opportunities. So forget the lab meat. So looking at now at just the 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 kind of the growth in the kind of plant based ranges that some of the big supermarkets are bringing out Tesco's and um, Sainsbury's waitresses they've all got their you know flexitarian range Tesco's just introduced a vegan ready meals range you know that they, they, they are seeing that the the, the trend you can also buy for, from other supermarkets uh, of course um, you can also, the, there's a tr- this trend for flexitarianism which is basically reducing the amount of meat in your diet um it has has really taken hold of the food industry but government is way behind way behind doing absolutely nothing on this what else could the government be doing so what government could be doing obviously post brexit big opportunity we could be supporting the right kinds of farming for a start we could be making sure that the industrial factory farming systems are not propped up whatsoever with any kind of taxpayers' money. Um, We need to make sure that the low-impact sustainable systems are better supported. And we're talking a lot about public money being used to pay for so-called public goods, like protecting the environment, boosting wildlife, pollinators, protecting water supplies and so on. So the farmers are doing the right thing. We need to support those better. Um, But also there's a huge amount we could do in procurement. So all the schools, hospitals, care homes, you know, why don't we have really great standards to ensure that they get all their food from great, you know, British producers producing sustainably um, that are and and, and giving giving us sustainable diets with less and better meat and dairy. Well, that was episode 34. What difference has that made in your life? Well, I had a vegan burger. A number of vegan burgers, actually. Um, and it hadn't put me off. Uh, we've seen recently... You had oat milk in your tea when you turned up I had, today as uh, well. Oat, almond milk, almond today, milk yeah. today in the tea. Um, also significant has been the purchase by Unilever, one of the world's largest consumer companies, of the vegetarian butcher. It's a chain. Um, because people are seeing this meat-free market as really on the rise. And you know, we've had this really gloomy report from the IPCC since then. Uh, about the, the body charged with looking at what's happening on climate change uh, and and the pace at which we need to change. And, you know, I think the the scale of the task is so big that it's why eating less meat has got to be on the agenda. There's a new entry at number five on our countdown. I mean, to be honest, they're all new entries yeah. because it's the ideas of the year. But That's where the sort of metaphor breaks down. It's fun it. to be it's, able to say these things. Exactly. Yeah. We never thought we would. No. Well, you might have thought you would. I but never it never happened thought. for me. So no, this is exactly. my chance to live yeah. that dream. Exactly. Um, so at number five, this is episode number 46. Won't you take me to Funky Town? Power and Prosperity in Towns. This was one of my favourite live shows of the year. We did it at the Trades Club in Hebden Bridge. Uh, and Hebden Bridge was awarded the fifth best place to live in the world. We heard from a local business owner, Beth Paramore, about what makes it such a special town and what's been done there. And here we hear from Lisa Nandy, MP. Berry knows better than Whitehall what the solutions are for Berry, and they know better than Manchester as well. And so moving that power away from centralised decision-making and down to town level so that people can actually drive the decisions um, that affect their lives is absolutely essential. There's a reason why Take Back Control really caught the public mood in towns across Britain during the referendum. It wasn't because suddenly 52% of this country had become Little Englanders. It's simply not true. You can see that in the collapse of UKIP ever since. But the truth is that take-back control really resonated with this sense of disempowerment, this sense that quite often national government is getting in the way of what towns want to see delivered in their own 
local areas. And that, that's the importance, I think, of the conversation that we're having here today. Because until relatively recently, I never heard this discussed at national level. I mean, I don't know about you, Ed, but I used to get off the train in Westminster on a Monday and feel like I was stepping into a completely different world from Wigan, where my home is, and feel like that again when I stepped off the train on a Wednesday night in Wigan. That cannot be right, that large swathes of this country just aren't represented in the national debate. And you're completely right about that. The contrast between Doncaster and London is, is the same. Talk to us about this divide, or how would you describe, no, not so much the divide, but the difference between cities and towns? Because as you say, you know, one has to be really careful about this, because you know, sometimes it's portrayed like towns are just benighted places and cities are all doing incredibly well. And that's obviously not what you're saying. But how would you describe the sort of difference before we get on to some of the solutions? Well, I'll just give you a personal example. I was born in Manchester in 1979. And um, Manchester at the time was younger than most of the... Uh, older, sorry, than most of the surrounding towns because of the industry that existed in that area. It's very similar in this part of the world as well. If you look at Leeds, it's a similar story. And over the last 40 years, what we've seen is a process where more and more jobs and opportunities have been concentrated in cities, where cities have got younger and younger. But as a consequence, towns have aged as those jobs and opportunities have been lost. And you see the net effects in towns across the country because what it's meant is as towns, many towns have lost their working age population, we've seen them hollowed out. We've seen the effects on the high street with the loss of stores like Marks and Spencer's and House of Fraser in recent weeks that have been in the headlines. We've seen it in the loss of community banking facilities, which just simply can't be sustained if you don't have a working age population. We've seen it with the loss of bus routes, which are the arteries of local economies and also connect us to one another. And we've seen it most of all with the loss of community institutions. So things like libraries, community pubs that can't be sustained anymore. And there's a real problem here. This is where I think the anger comes from because the Tory MP, Jesse Norman, said a few years ago that these institutions, these pubs, these libraries help to shape and define us as we help to shape and define them. This isn't just about economics. This is about the very fabric of people's lives disappearing before their eyes over recent decades. And it's that that accounts for the anger that's expressed towards people like us, actually, uh, you know, towards politicians who just don't seem to understand and get it and at worst are actually actively making decisions that are destroying that. And can we talk about some of the solutions? Because when, when I hear you talking about institutions like the library or the pub or the high street and I think about the way that modern life is changing, be it uh, people online so much more of the time, cheap booze in the supermarket, meaning people don't go to pubs so much, out-of-town shopping centres. Like, what are the solutions for things like that? For, if, if, if it is that sense of community and place and being with each other that gels a town together, if, how, how, you can't turn back the clock in a certain sense. What are the sort of forward-looking solutions? There is no one-size-fits-all. Actually, if you look at Doncaster, you look at Wigan, you look at Hebden Bridge, the skills, the aspirations, the strengths, the history, the identity is very, very different. And the difficulty at the moment, the thing that's common to all of these areas, is that most of these decisions are made hundreds of miles away by people who don't understand the cost of them. I mean, there was a cheer that went up in the audience tonight because when, when you said, Jeff, that you got the train over from Leeds, somebody shouted, hooray, you managed to get a train. <laughs> I mean, the fact that our timetabling issues have been caused by a group of people 
who never use these services, who don't know the local um, issues around it, just tells you everything you need to know about how remote power is in this country. So what has Reasons to be Cheerful done for the towns of our great nation since that episode? Before I get on to that, I think we should pay a little bit of tribute to our titles. I think, I think what, they deserve more recognition our titles because they take us a long time to think up. Well, they, they, let's be honest, they t- tend to take you a long time to think up because mine always get rejected. Is that, is that why you don't ever suggest any? Yeah, I've given up, yeah. <laughs> I like your titles. The voice has gone high again. We've talked about how when Ed's <laughs> lying, his voice goes <laughs> sort of prepubescent. No, but I, 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 I can't believe that's what you think. <laughs> They do. My titles are always rejected. Emma, I don't think that's true. You never suggest them. A couple. It, it, it is true. What's the one that's been rejected? Oh, I can't remember. It's too painful for me. Well, anyway, I think this was one of yours, which is why I mentioned it. Where <laughs> do you take me to Funky Town? Uh, showing that they're not always rejected. Um, uh, anyway, what's happened on towns? I think there's become more understanding of the issue of towns. I was very struck spending a bit of time in Paris that... It's a big issue in France as well, the towns versus cities things. Obviously, we've seen the yellow jersey, gilets jaunes uh, protests. A lot of that has arisen from towns. Um, now, we've seen action from uh, both the Conservatives and Labour on these questions. Uh, this government report released on the 20th of December, which said, uh, which was talking about the high streets and how do you regenerate the high streets. Uh, we've seen Labour putting forward policies for rejuvenating town centres. Um, so, you know, I think this is an issue that's time, whose time is coming. I think the Centre for Towns uh, that Lisa Nandy is involved in is d- doing great, doing great work. And I just want to say, I can't take credit for that title. It was one of Emma's, who is the unsung hero was it of, of titling oh, Emma, and really of the podcast sorry. in general. Yeah. Well, I was just desperately trying to make Jeff feel better, <laughs> Emma. Sorry. I just knew it wasn't one of mine because the word funky would not be in one of mine. <laughs> All right, number four on our reasons to be cheerful of 2018 is episode number 37, Rethinking Economic Success Beyond the Growth Obsession. And this was the beginning of festival season for us. And we started our festival tour at How the Light Gets In, which is a festival in Hayon, Y. And we were joined by Donut Economics author Kate Rayworth. First of all, mainstream economics, if you ever do a class in economics, it sort of starts like this. Welcome to economics. Here is the market. We're going to learn about supply and demand. People are nodding their heads at me, right? Here's supply and demand, as if to say, first of all, the economy is the market and that the market's in equilibrium. That's two untruths in one sentence. And I don't think a smart place to begin a degree. So we need to start by recognizing the economy is in the living world. It's embedded in society. And it's not just the market. And it's not even just the market in the state. It's the household where we all begin every day, unpaid caring work. It's the commons where people co-create things they value. A lot of that goes on at a festival. What is prosperity? Again, in the, I think last century, the idea that prosperity, it's good enough to say that prosperity happens when GDP is growing. When the economy is getting bigger, that means we're all getting more prosperous. Actually, GDP growth is coming apart from prosperity, huge inequality opening up. So GDP might be rising, but the average person's wages. So this is a big part of your argument, isn't it? Yeah. Because I want to get you to the donut. Oh, okay. You want I to mean, talk about donuts? Uh, the, the conventional view about economics is that success is measured by what people call growth. Yes, so more stuff being produced and more income being produced. Correct? Yeah, more goods and services yeah. sold in the economy. GDP goes up. And you're saying, no, we should think about the donut. Yes. So here's my reason to be cheerful. I can actually introduce you to the one donut that is going to be good for us. Okay. So you shouldn't eat donuts. The health warning, right? They're not really good for you. But this is the one that is. So imagine, I want everyone to imagine a big donut, the kind with the hole in the middle. 
And so in that hole is a place where people are left falling short on life's essentials. They don't have enough resources to have the food, healthcare, education, housing, income, political voice that every person in the world has a claim to having. So we want to get everybody out of the donut's hole into the donut itself. But also you can't... So no one left falling short on the inside of the circle, but also we can't overshoot the outside because there humanity's collective use of resources starts to put so much pressure on this unique, living, delicately balanced planet that we start to kick it out of kilter. We cause climate breakdown. We create a hole in the ozone layer. Biodiversity loss. We acidify the oceans. And, and around the outside of the donut is what are called the nine planetary boundaries. They're these critical life-supporting systems that have, for the last 11,000 years, kept Earth in the incredible, benevolent, home-sweet, home state for humanity that all civilizations have thrived in. So when you put those two together... The donut diagram tells us it's like a compass for the 21st century to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. And that double-sided challenge was never seen in past generations, right? So John Maynard Keynes, meet the needs of all people, have a going economy, that will create full employment, people can meet their needs. It's the recognition that in the process of doing that, burning all the fossil fuels, converting the land, using fertilizers, we are actually destroying the processes of the planet and destabilizing our home. That's a completely other side of the story. With the donor as a compass, we need new economic ideas for how the heck we bring ourselves into that balance. There is this thing called the Jeffocracy, um, which is Jeff as a benevolent dictator, which I'm quite dubious about personally. But you, if- you do know you invented it. Did I invent yes, it? Yes, you, you were the first. I thought you invented it. I didn't it. say the word uh, Jeff. Anyway, all right, all right, all right. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you didn't. But d- just tell us this. If you were called in by Jeff on his first day in office mm-hmm. and said, right, I'm making you Chancellor of the Exchequer or any position you want in government apart from Jeff's position, um, <laughs> what, uh, what, what would you do in your first... 100 days. So first I say, can I be not Chancellor of Exchequer, but Chancellor of Prosperity? Because I think we need to get, again, beyond this money focus to what is human well-being. Let's think about how people can generate energy this century. Because last century we had to buy it from coal mines and oil fields and, and gas pipelines. This century you can have a mini power station on the roof of every house. And in Germany, the government has actually, the policies led to around 40% of renewable energy that's generated in Germany is owned by citizens themselves. That is a far more distributive ownership of the assets of wealth creation. I can create my own electricity. Wow. Never been possible in human history before. Let's have far more distributive access to ideas and invest in the open source movement and the global commons movement, which is popping up everywhere, not led by governments, but led by citizens, almost despite governments pursuing patents and copyrights. There's an alternative ideas movement. Let's create housing, right, that's far more affordable. Let's stop this extractive rents of major cities in the UK and actually enable communities through mutual ownership of mortgages, through social cooperatives of housing to encourage that and enable that because we know it creates community. It doesn't just create a cluster of houses. People create connections between them that make places worth living in. Uh, Let's enable employee-owned enterprises and cooperatives the employee-owned enterprise is actually the fastest-growing form of enterprise in the UK, so it's already surging up from the bottom. We've got the community interest company. That's a new legal model you can incorporate your company in. But let's encourage that more. To me, these are all ways of distributing value far more equitably amongst people who help create it. 
So is it more donuts for everyone after that episode? More donuts for all. You know, people really like that episode. And, uh, you know, I think people really appreciated um, what Kate was saying and, and sort of this whole question of rethinking growth. And, and, you know, it is a bit of a dilemma, this, because particularly when it comes to tackling climate change, you think, you know, is it easy to do that with current levels of economic growth? Probably not. But selling low growth to people is, is not great easy thing to do but i think i think the very idea that we just need to think differently about what matters and gr- you know growth on its own ignores the environment all kinds of other things it also ignores what's happened to you know people's living standards because you could have economic growth where all of the gains are going to the you know top one percent so i think it was i think as a sort of think rethinking the framework i think it was really um impactful and she's been on an international tour kate including appearing at the dutch parliament uh in japan uh so you know really uh important episode and uh we had fun at, at hey on why send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com find us on facebook or tweet at cheerful podcast This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We're into the big top three now. And at number three, uh, a big favourite of mine, actually, episode 20, which was rescuing democracy from ancient Athens to Brexit. And... um, this is an episode. We went of- in, let's be honest, we went in really sceptical. We did. Uh, Alex, who used to work yeah. with us, he pitched this idea yeah. for a while. We were rolling our yeah. eyes and said, yeah, of course, Alex, there are other forms yeah. of democracy. Yeah. And then we came out of it. Yeah. I mean, as Convert. Is evangelist. Evangelist. Uh, so we explored 
how to improve democracy by involving ordinary people in decision making. Terrible name, sortition, but. Yeah, that's what it, it reminded me of, of Harry Potter and yeah. the sorting hat. So in this episode, we talk to James Fishkin, who is an expert in deliberative democracy, Sarah Allen of Involve. And in this clip, we hear from author David Van Raybrook. Sortition is the technical word in the English language for this Athenian model of democracy, whereby assemblies are created by drafting people by lot and inviting them to speak. It's more than an opinion poll. As a matter of fact... We use lottery uh, and sortition already every day, uh, but it's in, it's in the worst possible form, uh, and we call it opinion polls. With an opinion poll, we make a random sam- sample of people, and we ask them what they think when they don't think. And here the idea is we, we ask a random sample of people what they think after they had a chance to think. And this is happening in Ireland right now. I think Ireland is perhaps the most innovative democracy in the West right now, uh, the past couple of years, uh, Irish government has been bringing together random samples of citizens to come and talk, not just on mundane matters, but really substantial, even constitutional matters. One of them was same-sex marriage a couple of years ago, and 100 people were brought together then. 33 were politicians, elected politicians. 66 were random citizens drafted by lot. And they came together for 14 months. They had to discuss a number of issues of the Irish constitution. The most controversial one was the same-sex marriage issue. And those people came together for a period of 14 months. They saw each other for one weekend every month. And they basically learned from each other, learned from the experts they could invite, and were able to make a recommendation to the Irish government about what to do with same-sex marriage. And their recommendation was that the constitution should be adapted Now, that went into a referendum, and that was the first time in history that a constitutional change was brought about thanks to working with a random sample of citizens deliberating with each other. And David, what is the advantage? That's a really good specific example, but what is the advantage of that over a politician coming forward and saying now's the time for a referendum on same-sex marriage or you know campaigners forcing politics to take account of it why is it sort of different it's different because it's better we have basically three ways to do democracy democracy is the government in which people speak and decide and determine their future Uh, we know two procedures quite well one is elections the other one is referendums The third one is this sortition. Why is sortition in a number of cases better? Well, let's go back to the Irish case. The the Irish government said, like, if we are going to decide this with party politicians, whatever we will decide, we'll have the next election in the back of our mind. And this may influence the decision we take. And especially, I can imagine in Catholic Ireland, that you as a politician would be very careful to make a number of decisions uh, if you're thinking about the next election. So the alternative would have been turning to a referendum. But the problem with referendums is that they are very good because they give people a voice. But it's not quite clear what is meant by that voice. And they have a big danger. And the biggest danger of referendums is that they may divide a society for a long time to go. And so the Irish government, in its wisdom, decided not to solve this issue through party politics and not to do it through a referendum either, but through a much smarter model, which was this sortition-based model that then went to Parliament and then went to a referendum. But that was a more interesting procedure than a blunt referendum or blunt party politics as we know it. 
So has democracy been rescued? Well, then? I think this is, idea is really gaining traction. Well, what's gratifying is that lots of people have sort of said they really liked our episode and people involved with these this kind of movement um, as as a kind of explanation of what it can do. But since then, we've had uh, the Irish abortion uh, referendum to, to decision to legalize abortion in Ireland, which again the initial question and the initial discussions came out of an exercise in deliberative democracy. And as we speak, we've got lots of people advocating for this in relation to to Brexit as a way out of the impasse. So it's in the public consciousness. It's though. very Something much that's it, been talked about and considered. It's very much in the public consciousness, and uh, you know, I, I think it, I think it will, I think it will grow as an idea. This, and it's all down to us. Well, yes, <laughs> you know, we played a small part. I think. So we're into the top two. At the this tension's point, quite, at this you know, point, I'm sure you're listening to this thinking, who's at number two, yeah. who's at number I one? Mean, the tension is quite, it's quite Pal- is it palpable. Think it's palpable. It's palpable. Okay. It feels like there's moments in Eurovision, you know, when the last votes are coming in. Well, you're ready for this. Yeah. This is a curveball because at number two, yeah. it's a bonus episode. Bonus! Yes! It was Reasons to be Pirate. It was about a book called Be More Pirate, which re-examines the myths and legends around pirates and how we can apply the pirate principles of breaking and rewriting the rules to the modern world. And in You this- are. That's, you sounded like a farmer. You sounded like one of the oh, wurzels yeah. there. It was all a bit, come by, um, yeah. I've got a brand what new is come by. Thing, then? Isn't it more like, Arr! I think you've really all got right. to commit. Okay, good. That's good. No, no, you're looking at me like, no, no, oh, God, really Jeff, impressive. you've embarrassed yourself. No, 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 I thought it was really impressive. It was better than yours, at least. Yeah, it really was. Mine was the farmer, yeah. (laughs) So in this clip, uh, we speak to, uh, in the whole episode, in fact, was was a conversation with the author Sam Conifiende. The first stage is to rebel. Just a very simple act of sod that. That's a stupid rule. Why are you doing that? And you you, you both know this. You can find yourself in many organisations. Why do we do that? Oh, that's just the way we've always done it. If you traced it back, you know, someone on a bad day with a hangover came up with an idea and that's become a rule, right? Yeah. You know, we all realise that as we become grown-ups and suddenly you're, you're waiting to meet the people in charge, like there's somebody that knows what they're doing and doesn't matter how high up you go, they're still not there, are they? Um, so break a rule because it's incredibly liberating. You'll, you'll still be here tomorrow. You know, you might get told off. We're so conditioned to follow the rules that we will even follow the stupid rules. And I don't think there's the only thing more stupid than a stupid rule is the person that follows it. So I think there's a a level of accountability for the situation that we're in that you need to be ready to start questioning some of those early assumptions. Are these the right way of doing things? You know, the world's speeding up and, and the shit is going down. The second stage is to rewrite. The thing that distinguishes these pirates from any other, the, 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 the fantastic Chinese pirates, which is a great story, the Somalian pirates, which is a, is a tragedy. These pirates didn't just break rules, they rewrote them. This is actually an exercise in a, in a generation rewriting the rules of society. And that's the bit where they should be. So it's not just well, anarchy. Yeah. It is not purposeless yeah. anarchy. Yeah. It is willful, creative destruction. You know, let's break these. They, they were tearing down the rules of society to make something better for themselves. You know, there was nothing for them. So they rewrote, how do we have a say in this wealth? How do we have a say in our lives? And, you know, the, the female, you know, this, this week has been, you know, the Millicent Fawcett has been the, the biggest news of the week, and so she should be. Um, you know, what she represents a little while after this Golden Age of Pirates was a time when women were considered to be not just less uh, equal, but less intelligent, less capable. And so people putting, you know, the idea that women could be fearless leaders, it was so out of its time. So, yes, it's absolutely about rewriting the rules, defying conventions and then resetting them. Uh, the third is about reorganisation, 
because there was no way they were going to go up and win against the Navy by taking them on at size. Um, and so it's about how do we, as more nimble organizations or smaller groups and bodies, um, begin to challenge the notion of scale and growth. You know, scale and growth slowed the Royal Navy down. Scale and growth challenges us now in the kind of hopefully the latter stages of bloated capitalism and the, the negative outputs of some of the big businesses when big is no longer a kind of asset but a liability. We, all, we, all can, we can all see where we are with part of this problem. You see with the big big business stories of the moment, you know, the, the greed and the, the, the flabbiness of it. So these guys really pied in what we would now call like buzzwords as agile networks and, you know, fluid systems and responsive organizations. They really, really pioneered it. They got it just right. They were on average about 40, 50 person crews. Uh, they could crew up and there's 2000 of them. Henry Morgan leads a 2000 person crew and sacks the entire city of Panama. Then they can then crew down back to their individual um, that's not necessarily the, the thing to aspire to, by the way. Um, and then back down to that. So that's really fluid structure. And, and, and I think we need this. I think we need to get over this idea that, that growth for growth's sake is good because growth for growth's sake is cancer. And when you apply that to business, we've got a real problem, as we know we have. So the, the fourth one is then about redistribution. Uh, uh, and that's redistribution of power. So these guys, they'd escaped the Navy, they'd escaped these stratified systems, and they didn't want, you know, Jeff to become the captain because he seems all right now. Because um, once we're out of sea, you know, Jeff might go mad and he doesn't want to share the gold. Very likely. <laughs> you can see it's the beard. So we'll make Ed the quartermaster. So we'll give Definitely. it... I'm not sure about that. Checks and balances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ed's got the voice of the people. Yeah. So we'll give Definitely. Ed the voice of the people. You've got the strategy. And so now there's equal power. So Aha, the Jeffocracy is dead. <laughs> It's, so it's shared out, but then we'll give everyone else in the room, we'll give everyone equal votes so that if either of you lose the plot, the, you know, the power is then distributed and shared. So, and, and I see, we see this in the social enterprise, you know, the growth of social enterprise so well. I was, um, I don't know whether I'm allowed to say this. Uh, Go on. So I was doing a pirate talk at Stella McCartney's um, Strategy Away Day for her global team and, and business. And at the end of it, the, one of the ideas we come with is, you know, mutinies and what can we do that's different? And this one really smart, like classic millennial talent, you know, obviously such a bright mind in the business. Everyone had to put forward their ideas for rule breaking. He said, we should corporatize the business. You know, you couldn't think of an idea further away from a business, an idea that that kind of business might think of. But it, it caught fire. And the reason it caught fire is the, the, the appetite for self-ownership, you know, the rise of the hustle generation of doing your own thing is actually the thing that people want. So this notion of redistributing a, a, a slight chunk of having the ownership of it not only keeps things fairer, stops them going the way that we have been, because we know that hasn't worked for our businesses now for generations, but also it meets this growing appetite of millennials and the changing workforce. And the fifth is retail, uh, which is the pirate's real strength. They told such tall tales that it shook the world. You know, this this idea that the small can't necessarily defeat the, the big, we've you know, reproven that time and again. The art of their storytelling, you know, their branding and their marketing, we've kind of touched on this, and um, was just pronounced and, and, and profound and allowed them to really take on those those odds. And it's what meant that you know, the first, um, uh, when the Royal Charter allowed only 12 printing presses, when the printing press was first brought to the UK, uh, it meant, of course, that the monarch had complete control over the, the media. Now, we wouldn't stand for that these days. Um, uh, and the first public press was called the Pirate Press. And it was obviously named after the heroes of the hour. And it started putting out the stories. At, uh, when was that? 1716. So it was right in the right. midst of it. Um, and it started publishing at an affordable price media for the mainly illiterate masses with stories of pirates and others. So again and again and again, the, the storytelling power of this is, is so profound. So these five stages... Um, it could be seen as glib that they all begin with an R, but also allows me to say that it's the R section of it. <laughs> so did you become more pirate after that episode? 
maybe. I, I really liked the episode. I think it was really good. And we we sent Sam off, didn't we, to work with our listeners? Yes, and and he did. And he did. And Sam's now launched his book in the US. Um you know, it, it, we I think we had lots of feedback on that episode. And I just I think the notion of sort of breaking out of the conventional framework I think is a really important thought whatever walk of life you're in. It's time to reveal the number one reasons to be cheerful idea of 2018. Who's <laughs> I don't think that sounds like a drum roll is the thing. I know I know it's well intended. All right. But you sounded, you sounded like you were banging on the desk. Right. Yeah. Okay. It, it's typical. Can you, go, can you do the drum roll then? I do, well, I haven't got. I mean, Emma, would there be any possibility of dropping in a drum roll here? Yeah. Look, here's our drum roll now. Are you ready? No, I'm, I'm trying to ramp up All the right. excitement here. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. The number one reasons to be cheerful episode of the year, and it was a fantastic uh, episode. It was one of our best live shows. It was episode 50 reversing the cycle of gang violence lessons from scotland it was our first appearance at the end of fringe we were also joined by comedian louisa omilan who was brilliant just brilliant and um, i'm really pleased that she's gone on to do stuff on you know her um politics, she has politics for bitches, politics, bitches on, it's been on television yeah. and so on and she's a great great person uh, but the main section of our episode uh was so interesting and so moving it was about correcting the recreational violence cycle that many young people get trapped in and our guest was karen mccluskey and so what we did was i went to the boss and i said look we're gonna we're gonna get all these guys into a courtroom like hundreds of them at a time a courtroom a courtroom so right. we got them all in so we got them in for the jails all these the guys people convicted who'd been in ga- yeah who'd been in ga- who'd been in gangs we then went out to the guys who we hadn't arrested because remember we catch the feckless and the stupid you know there's loads of people out there i mean yeah. we don't catch everybody that's why donald trump's in trouble i Indeed. think uh, yeah uh, it's him next yeah so but you know and so we we got them all into a courtroom and literally, what we did was we had them all in. We had the chief constable, who was the next chief constable, who was a bit shorter at the time. And we flashed all their pictures around the wall. And you could see them all pointing. Oh, look, there's me, you know, like CCTV. Just the convicted people. Everybody, CCTV, right. gang fighting in the streets. And we said, look, I don't want to go to your house and tell your mother you've just been killed. Or go to your house and just tell her that, you, you know, we've just arrested you for a murder. Because can I tell you, sometimes the look in the parents' face is exactly the same horror i mean i never want to meet another murder victim's family i know i will i just don't you know it's a catastrophic series of events and you know people used to say where are you going to start because it's so complex and so big and you know you just have to start someplace and we said to the guys you need to stop as of 12 midnight it stops the next one of you offends we're going to take out your whole group and then but we said but there's a way out if you want out of this Here's one number you can phone at 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'll come out and meet you. You know, we rehoused people. We got them into trauma, training. We, you know, we got them into jobs. If you go to the if you go to the Edinburgh military tattoo, anybody wants to go. All the guys who are moving, all the scenery around on the tattoo, are my ex-gang members. You know, the best way. The, I suppose the best way to stop a gun or a gang or a knife is a job. Absolutely. I have so many people who are so far away from the employment market. And so they all just, came into, just on this point about the room, they all came into the room. They all came into the room. You had testimony from a victim's Hundreds. mother. So we had a victim's mama, a lady who um, I'm friendly with, whose, whose boy was stabbed to death 
and a gang-related um, murder. And she, it's really interesting because she stood up in front of the room and, I mean, it was really quiet. And she said, you boys might not care about yourself, but let me tell you about my son. And I go into his room every single day and I will never get over this. And it's really interesting. All the guys out there, I mean, you might look at them and you might see offenders. I also see victims. Most of them have been a victim one week, an offender the next, a victim the next week. But you could hear them sniffing in the back of the room. Because they all love their mums. They do. And you know, and I'm not saying that their parents can always do the right things for them, but they did. And then we had a surgeon who stood up, and the surgeon pretty much flashed up all the pictures. And he said, I'm a, you know, I, I specialise in babies' cleft palates. I've actually got a waiting list now, because if you've got this massive facial injury, you go to the very top of the list. All the intensive care beds will be taken up, your, you know, your high dependency unit beds will be taken up. If you're waiting for a planned operation, you'll be bumped down the list. So, you know what I mean? It's got, it's got secondary effects. And they couldn't even look at some of the pictures. Because, I mean, they are horrible. So, they're not, so the notion that these are hard um, men or young you know, teenagers, actually, you could get through to them. See, the thing is, everybody's influenced by the media. So you see the pictures in the paper, you know, and they're normally, it's after an offence and it's a police photograph. Or you, you see it through the lens of the media. I've never met anybody whose story didn't start with, see when I was nine, see when I was five, see when I was seven. Their lives are catastrophic. Yeah. I mean, let's not pretend that people's choices are created equally, because they're just not. You know, and I don't think I've ever met a clean skin who's committed, like, a horrible violent offence and, and they were so hopeless and alien. we actually had to come up with a phrase because you got all oh, the, the World Health Organisation sort of tells you all the type of violence you can get like organised and whatever else we actually had to come up with a term called recreational violence we're just going out on a Thursday night you know and it's a, it's a really interesting thing and we had such success through doing that you know people just wanted out they wanted a different life and they wanted hope these boys don't care about death or prison they want a reason to be cheerful can you, can you talk to us about the results you've had? Well, we've... Um, so we brought down violence. I mean, we're at some of the lowest records since records began for homicide, for murder. Um, we're at a 52%... We've reduced violence by 52%. There's a 56% reduction through people going in through A&E because you have to remember, only 30% of violence is reported to the police. So my measure was always, can I reduce the amount of people going through the emergency rooms? Right. So I set up a big charity called Medics Against Violence. So I've got doctors that go out to school and we intervene in the a and because that was a good measure. Because it's not about police stats, because nobody really trusts police stats, you know, including the public. Because when you're saying violence is up 5%, down 3%, up 6%, people are thinking, well, you're either lying or you're an idiot because you don't know what's happening here. Whereas those going through the a and you could really intervene. So it's been an interesting... And where, are, where is Scotland now in the, the league table? Oh, we're way, we're way, way down. I mean, listen, we're, I'm not complacent. We've still got too many people in jail. You know, we've still got too many kids' lives who are blighted. And we've still got too many people who, you know, once you pick up a conviction, it's really difficult to get into a job, you know? And you're, you know, so we almost condemn you to life and benefits, you know? You serve a sentence, but your sentence is really lifelong. But, you know, we've tried lots of things. I mean, everybody wants you to do knife amnesties. Let's put bins out. Oh, that just doesn't work. I mean, you know, I mean, there's things that people want you to do because it, it seems like a big, you know, you can mm. put it in the papers, etc. Trying to do things that are a bit out there. 
are, you know, is, is that bit more difficult? And we train all the dentists to intervene in the chair. Like, you know, so if you go in up in Scotland and you've got a tooth punched out, they'll say, this isn't an injury I would normally see in my chair. You're in a safe place. That's for women who've been domestically abused as well. Wow. We train the fire service because our fire service up here have been great until the hot weather. Um, you know, because I've had loads of fires to put out. But they're no longer putting out chip pan fires because we have now embraced a healthier lifestyle. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we trained the fire officers because they were putting in smoke alarms in the house. And we then got them to intervene. So if they saw somebody with a bruise in their face, and particularly a woman, she was 87% likely to have been domestically abused if she had a, a bru- bruise in her face. So we did everybody. Teachers, try and keep kids in school because one more kid you keep in school is one less kid I'll have in jail. Absolutely. And the teachers up here have been fantastic because it's a hard ask. Question right at the back. I can see a hand right at the back. Hi. What's your name? Lara. Hi. Hi. So um, that's really, really interesting. I was just going to say, how do you think that would apply to other countries or other parts of the UK? Do you think it's something that's applicable to all people? So really a question partly about other parts of the country and other places, including London, which I was going to ask you about, has obviously a significant knife crime problem. I'm trying to work out how to answer this. So... London is talking to you, yeah? So I used to work in the Met. I was was seconded down to the Met for a while. And, you know, and I I do go down to London quite a bit. In fact, I'd been down 26 times. Um, You actually need to decide that you want to make change. And, I mean, long term. There are no short term things. You know, there's no quick fix solutions. I mean, you know, we, we've, we've, we have changed it dramatically. It's taken us 13 years. Uh, it, it's a huge amount of time. And I often say that it's not my job to tell England or London what to do because if the oh, shoe was on. in the other... No, but if, if the shoe was in the other foot, and for those who are the Scots in the audience and London were telling us how to do stuff, we'd probably get a bit angsty. And mm. so, but what I do say is there's an evidence base. Yeah. But can I tell you, this actually comes down to leadership. I mean, you really... You, you know, this, I know it's going to sound like a sort yeah. of stupid politician thing to say, but it sounds kind of obvious yeah. when the way you present it. Yeah. What is the biggest barrier to it? That it takes a long time, that you have, you have setbacks along yeah. the way... Is it that, public opinion? That it's being too nice to... It's, nice it's, in inverted commas it's to criminals? Everything. I mean, I, I was reading a guy called Adam Gopnik in the, the, you know, he was in the New Yorker, and he said what, what it takes is a thousand small sanities. You know, there's never one big solution to everything. You need a thousand things. And and that's very much true of violence. But it's, um, I mean, it's really interesting. It's such a big overwhelm. I mean, I can see that. When I'm talking about violence, I can see people think, oh, that's huge. Where do we start? So I talk about early years and how how important, critically important, parents are. A good parent's as close as it gets to being magic without being magic. You know, about keeping kids in school. And it's just sometimes it's just too big. I mean, I have people in three groups. There's those that see the light and say, you're absolutely right and I'm happy to help you. And they're great. You just surround yourself with them. I'm in that group. You're in that group. There's those in the middle that say, right, Karen, I think that sounds great, but can I tell you, that sounds like more work for me. Now, I have to convince them. Just in that group. Are you in that group? I can convince you as well. And then there's a group at the end that think, you know something, I just can't be arsed. That group of people... You know, and that's how they talk about the otherization. And I just never go back to say, I always say that's my leadership mantra. You can lead, you can follow, and you can get out of the way. That's it. Big round of applause for that, I'd say. Uh... And that was our number one reasons to be cheerful idea. Such a well deserved number one. You know, I had people coming up to me after the um, after that episode saying, you know, literally, she's the best like speaker they'd ever heard. I mean, people were just blown away. 
by it. And it was a combination of her and Louisa, to be fair, but, but Karen was just absolutely brilliant. And since the episode, Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, announced in September that he will be adopting the programme that Karen ran in Glasgow to try and tackle knife crime in London. So, you know, I think it was really well chosen that 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 episode that's the top 10 but i think it's really important to say to all of our guests who are on you know we 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 had real trouble picking these top 10 you know we've got 50 episodes 52 episodes you know we 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 genuinely i think loved them all didn't we? And, and if you were one of our guests uh and not in one of the top 10 episodes be assured it was yours that was at number 11 yeah exactly yeah. no but i mean genuinely i think you know, we we feel really indebted to our guests. They come on, they give their time, and to to, to sort of talk about ideas. And, and I think you know, we we thank them each week, but we really want to do a big collective thank you to all our twenty eighteen guests. Definitely, and it's just exciting and reassuring to know that these ideas are out there. Yeah, and thank you to you for listening. Uh, I thought you were saying thank you to me. No, I'm, saying thank you, I'm thanking the listener here. I thought you thank you to me for listening to you. <laughs> well, you don't, do you? <laughs> Not on the titles, no. Uh, no, I think, you know, the listeners are the people that make this, aren't they? Yes. Well, I think technically, it's actually Amaris. Yeah. I mean, I think we deserve it. some credit, too, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> Look, I, what I'm learning from we're this, what I'm badly. learning from this, this is, is like, we're not the sort of people who can do those sincere no, I sort of Oscar. No, but you know what? Normally I can. It's like you're influence. <laughs> no, well, I'm I, normally very good at this. Yeah, I'm, I'm not normally very good no, at I this. No, I can see yeah. you sort of like the cheap joke offering is sort of just too tempting, isn't it? But I just feel uncomfortable with sincerity. It's, you know, it's you, my underlying you emotional issues. That you've got it made. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but no, genuinely, I think the listeners, and, and we love getting feedback from listeners, positive and sometimes negative but no, we prefer the positive but but uh, we do we do you know read all of the communications we get from uh people i think we should do an absolutely massive thank you to emma caution who produces the podcast and who you know frankly you know jeff you drive her bananas with all your requests <laughs> your sort of you know emails at 11 o'clock at night or is that me maybe that sounds more like me yeah. i was just sort of projecting but we're really grateful to you emma aren't we yes very much so so Emma Corsham is our producer uh, thanks to Tony Blackburn thanks to Tony Blackburn who was our special guest yeah. announcer on this week's episode of course our usual announcer is Gail Lofthouse oh we love Gail Lofthouse yeah uh, James Deacon made the James has a very good podcast of his own actually oh, what's it called it's called Desert Island Dicks really yes just a little plug for James there what's it uh, about it's it's uh, you you pick four people you wouldn't want to be stranded on a desert island wow. with yeah um, but yeah there's a little plug for James's podcast yeah. and Ed Seed made the music and um, and Emily Power yeah designed the album really good old Emily to Emily Power very much so he's been Jeff Chart Monster Lloyd he's been Ed Toppermost of the Poppermost Milliband these have been reasons to be cheerful. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.